welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, my name is Jordan Hoffman. I'm a fellow in cardiothoracic surgery at the University of Colorado, and I'll be bringing you another episode in the TSRA podcast series on cardiac and thoracic surgery. We are joined today by Dr. John Mitchell, Professor of Cardiothoracic Surgery and Section Chief of General Thoracic Surgery at the University of Colorado and National Jewish Health. Dr. Mitchell has a special interest in minimally invasive operative techniques for the treatment of complications related to advanced pulmonary infections. Today we will be discussing the diagnostic approach, management strategies, and operative techniques for patients with mycobacterial disease. We will illustrate these concepts with a case presentation. Dr. Mitchell, thank you again for joining us. Happy to be here. So let's get started. You're asked to see a 45-year-old female with known multidrug-resistant tuberculosis for consideration of surgical resection of persistent disease. How do you initially approach a consult like this? Well, Jordan, the first thing to realize is patients like this need to be treated in a multidisciplinary environment. So I would caution anyone who sees a patient like this to discuss the case and formulate treatment decisions as part of a larger group. Here in Denver, we have a weekly conference where we discuss patients like this that involve not only myself as the surgeon, but also pulmonologists and infectious disease specialists that are interested in pulmonary infectious lung disease. So a multidisciplinary approach is really crucial. Usually when we're asked to intervene in a patient with drug-resistant tuberculosis, it's because of uh, persistently positive cultures or focal presence of parenchymal disease for which resection might be beneficial in incrementally improving the cure rate. So we discuss the relative merits of patients like this in our multidisciplinary group. So the consultant tells you that the patient has been on medical therapy for several months and her sputum cultures remain positive. Are there any imaging characteristics that would lead you to believe the patient will be difficult to cure with medical management alone? Well, certainly the presence of thick-walled cavities makes us worry about that. If the cavity is focal and relatively solitary, then clearly surgery could play a role in incrementally improving the cure rate. There are other issues. The medicines are difficult to take. There are a lot of toxicities with them. So that plays an additional role in that the patient can't often tolerate the medical therapy for a prolonged length of time. Third, although this isn't as much of an issue in North America, often there are issues with availability of medical therapy or the cost of medical therapy. And these sort of things, particularly outside of North America, can also play a big role. I know we've touched on this issue previously, but are you seeing more patients come to operative intervention because of persistent parenchymal disease or because of complications related to the infection itself or a combination of both? Well, there's two reasons to operate on people, two broad categories of indications for surgery in people with drug-resistant tuberculosis. One is to incrementally improve the chance of cure, and two, to operate on complications of prior tubercular infection, whether it's drug-resistant TB or drug-sensitive. An example of that would be a post-tubercular stricture of the airway. Getting back to the initial indications to affect cure, patients that we see 
typically have focal disease, as I mentioned. They typically often have cavities or significant areas of bronchiectasis. These areas uh, tend to harbor organisms uh, and tend to have the medical therapy not penetrate quite as well into these areas. And so the idea in resecting these areas is that the, it gives the medical therapy an improved chance to affect cure. Patients with persistent disease often have several non-infectious medical comorbidities such as malnutrition, cardiac disease, hemoptysis, etc. Are you finding that it requires uh, a lot of your time, uh, an effort to optimize a patient prior to an operation for resection? Well, it's clearly very important to try to optimize things before you operate on any of these patients. One of the big things is the nutritional status. So we here in Denver have tried a variety of methods to try to optimize the nutritional status prior to surgery. So often, however, if there's significant cavities or other significant areas of pleural sepsis, these are really catabolic issues for the patient and it becomes very difficult for them to put on weight and to significantly improve their overall nutritional status despite intensive efforts. But it's safe to say that we try to optimize it as best as we can. Other things like cardiac, certainly the cardiac status needs to be evaluated. You need to evaluate the patient in terms of their pulmonary function and uh, as you would in any planned resection. And finally, things like hemoptysis and other symptoms like that, which often present in conjunction uh, with these sorts of issues or patients, uh, they are often addressed at the time of resection by removing the offending area of lung. Once you've obtained a microbiologic diagnosis, reviewed the appropriate imaging and pulmonary function studies, and optimized the patient's functional status preoperatively, would any additional testing or information be necessary prior to an operation? Uh, no. I think that the timing of the surgery is usually predicated on delivery of antibiotic therapy. We think it's very important that every attempt is made to produce a nadir in the bacterial count prior to surgery. It's important to realize that the timing of the surgery is a decision that needs to be made with the treating medical physicians as well as the surgeon. And when you decide to operate on a patient with persistent disease or complications of disease, how do you decide what your operative approach to the patient will be? Well, certainly the imaging plays a big role because it defines the extent of the parenchymal disease. It allows us to tailor the operation to the patient. We tend to favor anatomic resection rather than simple wedge resection uh, in these patients. So we are usually talking about segmentectomy or lobectomy or even pneumonectomy. The question about whether to, uh, one can operate open or VATS is really a case-by-case -case basis and it for me largely depends on the degree of pleural symphysis that's present. Often, as everyone knows, when some degree of pleural adhesions are present, they can actually be addressed easier via VATS than through an open approach. But if you have somebody with a completely destroyed lung where there's complete pleural symphysis, in those cases a VATS approach is really not feasible and we tend to employ an extrapleural dissection technique. I know we talked about anatomic resection, but do you ever perform wedge resections in these patients? Almost never, because the things that we are addressing 
within the lung parenchyma, say a cavity, often have associated bronchiectasis. So we feel it's important to perform an anatomic resection to remove all the areas uh, of damage. How often are you having to perform these extrapleural dissections to remove disease? Well, it really depends on how the patient presents and what the imaging reveals as you plan for the surgery. So I would say that of all the mycobacterial patients we see every year here, we probably perform VATS, uh, a VATS approach on about 75% of them. But the other 25%, a VATS approach is really not feasible or recommended. Certainly there's a gray area in between these two extremes where we might put a scope in and assess the feasibility of doing it via VATS. In those cases, I usually plan for either eventuality and along those lines, for example, where thoracotomy is a real possibility, we will plan for it by placing an epidural preoperatively. I don't think there to put a scope in and assess the situation and then move forward with thoracotomy as a defeat. It's really rather the final analysis of the situation, recognition that performing it via VATS is simply not going to be feasible. I've noticed when I operate with you, sometimes you buttress the bronchial stump and sometimes you leave it alone. What's your preferred method and how do you make that decision? We usually buttress the bronchial stump with intercostal muscle and employ larger chest wall muscles with transposition for space issues inside the chest. So if we're going to buttress the bronchial stump, indications, I think, in the setting of mycobacterial disease would include a very poorly controlled infection, significant drug resistance, or if you're going to perform a pneumonectomy, particularly on the right side. In any of those situations, we routinely buttress the bronchial stump. You know, at the other end of the curve, patients that are having an isolated segmentectomy or even lobectomy in a well-controlled infection, drug-sensitive organisms almost never need buttressing of the bronchial stump. Are you performing drainage procedures such as LOS or flaps often, and how do you make this determination that you're going to do that? Well, in the setting of resection for mycobacterial disease, indications for creating an open thoracostomy really come down to the degree of pleural soilage. Sometimes people will present with a bronchopleural fistula or a parenchymal pleural fistula where there's gross pleural involvement uh, with the infection. And in those patients following resection, we will plan for a creation of an open thoracostomy. In other cases, the spillage of the infected material may occur during the surgery. We obviously try to avoid that and it's one of the reasons for employing an extrapleural dissection. But in some cases, it's inevitable. And in those cases, we would construct the thoracostomy following the planned resection. In those cases, we perform an isolated rib resection or removal of two or three ribs and create the epithelialized tunnel into the chest. And typically, we'll close them anywhere from six weeks to three or four months later. Do you have any special management strategies for the patient's immediate post-operative care with regards to chest tube management, nutrition, antibiotics, and immediate imaging follow-up? 
Not really. The post-operative care is largely routine, consistent with any post-resection patient, whether it's for cancer or infection. Um, one thing to realize is that if you perform a resection for infectious lung disease, often the residual lung within that hemithorax will expand to a lesser extent than one might expect, and certainly to a lesser extent than following, say, a resection for lung cancer. I think it has to do with the, the fact that the remaining lobes still have some degree of disease or involvement, and they tend to be a little bit more restricted in their expansion. So space issues are a bit more of a concern following this operation than after a resection for lung cancer. And lastly, how do you follow these patients long-term after resection? Well, obviously, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, that a multidisciplinary approach is crucial. And to be honest, we don't follow all these people long-term as their treatment tends to extend for many months or even years after the resection. So our medical colleagues tend to follow these patients and ultimately decide on stopping therapy. Okay, well, thank you, Dr. Mitchell, for speaking with us today and giving us a unique perspective into the treatment of resistant pulmonary infections.